Welcome to Strength in the Numbers. My name is Andrew Codd, accountant, author, and commercial finance entrepreneur. And it's my job each week to bring you leaders in finance and business and deconstruct with them their real stories, insights, and hard-won lessons into practical advice on the key strengths and qualities you need to remain relevant in accounting and finance today, as well as the steps you can begin to take to elevate the impact you make to have a fun, successful, and rewarding career in accounting and finance. Now let's go over to the show. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Strength in the Numbers. Our guest mentor today is Ken Fick. He's an FPNA thought leader and also founder of FPAexperts.com, which is a digital platform for corporate finance professionals giving tips and ideas on how to accelerate their careers in finance to enhance the impact they make for businesses. Now, Ken has had an amazingly varied career, but has gained so much useful experience that he shares on the show. I mean, one thing that not a lot of us get exposure to is forensic corporate litigation, and he shares some of what he learned there, particularly around making the numbers less grey. And then most of the rest of our conversation focuses focuses on the future of FP&A. You know, we talk about the advantage of FP&A today and also the role of continuous accounting to help it develop into the future. We also go into the type of skills FP&A professionals should be developing if they want to remain relevant. And I particularly encourage you to listen out to the two bits of advice he shares at the end of the show, which will be invaluable for anyone wishing to have a fun, rewarding and successful career in accounting and finance. So if you want to go into more detail, check out the timestamp show notes at sitnshow.com slash podcast slash zero five zero. So without further ado, over to Ken and the show. So Ken, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Andrew. Thank you. Now, Ken, some of our audience may not be as familiar with your background or your journey in accounting finance. So would you mind maybe sharing with us a bit about your journey in terms of how you got to your current role? Oh, absolutely. Well, let's see here. After graduating with an undergraduate degree in accounting and finance from a public university here in the States, uh, I worked at the finance departments of a couple of Fortune 500s, then went and got my MBA, and then I worked for a large consulting, public trade consulting firm here uh, in the U.S., uh, doing forensic litigation and corporate restructuring projects, which was really, really interesting. Um, it was a really wonderful, neat time in my life. Uh, I got to work with PhD economists and leading experts in the field to develop expert reports and complex analysis on a variety of finance topics. And I got to be there during a great period of time, right? I got, uh, in the U.S., we had the, the Great Recession that happened. There's also a bunch of accounting scandals that just happened at the beginning of the Enron and so on that was still, you know, being worked out. And, um, you know, I got to really dig into that, uh, which, was, which was great. And then after about seven years of doing that, I had a young family and wanted to spend more time at home. So I worked as a head of FP&A for a large organization, ran a consulting division of a large law firm, and then was a CFO of a digital marketing agency. And then uh, I moved back into consulting just recently, about a year ago, where with Morgan Franklin, which is a large strategy and execution consulting firm, where I focus on complex technical accounting and corporate performance management initiatives and working with companies to, to help improve it. So it's, it's been awesome. I've, I really enjoyed it. So yes, yeah, so, so like a bit a bit of a mix there between industry and consulting. I have to say you're, yeah. you're the first guest we've had on that talked about forensic and litigation consulting. How really? the hell did you end oh, up into yeah. that? Yeah. Oh well, yeah, it's odd, right? <laughs> so <laughs> when I was at the, um, uh, I was working at a company called Capital One prior to to going to grad school, and we always had these consultants of McKinsey and Bain come in there, and and it was really it, the company was growing, and and there's a lot of things going on. And the, the senior executives hired these people, and they, they'd all they'd all come and ask me what the what the answers were. It got to the point where I literally put together a PowerPoint deck, and they go through the same PowerPoint deck, whatever consultant the du jour was. 
And, um, you know, what the issues were, I'm like, this is what's going to happen. You can take this, you're going to recommend it. Nothing's going to change. I know this because I'm, I'm here for long enough. And I'm like, well, why? Wait a minute. If they're doing this, they're getting paid obscenely large amounts of money. And I'm not. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a problem. There. So I said, okay, I want to go to get my MBA and I want to go into consulting. And I have, uh, at the time, and I still have it, a, a certified public accountant as a CPA in the U.S. It's similar to the charter accountant. Uh, in the UK, I think. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking to, to move out into consulting and a someone who led a, a, um, um, an office at FTI in DC actually graduated from my undergrad university and I gave him a call. Said, you know, you'd be great at this. I mean, you're diving into, you know, deep technical issues. And I'm like, okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm like 28. I'm like, it sounds cool, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. no one really knew... No one really, it wasn't really known that much. You know, it's like a specialty consulting thing. And and I ended up loving it. I mean, it was, it was, it was neat because, especially at such a young age, my clients were the who's who on the Wall Street Journal. And I, I'd open up the paper and they would either be a defense or prosecution, working with the lawyers. Or there was a bankruptcy that I was doing, you know what I mean? And working them through that. You know, a lot of things you found out what not to do. And the line between between right and wrong it's not black and white it's a whole series it's a whole series of, of, of gray up until you get to a tipping point but when you pay you don't know when you're going to pass that tipping point mm-hmm. and it's not me i'm just talking about the the people that that i yeah. work with in, in regards to seeing how things have gone about you don't know when you pass that tipping point unfortunately and and then you keep on going and once you pass it it's almost it's almost impossible to go back that's interesting. and you know i saw that yeah, it's, 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 it's really interesting, I and mean, there's whole science around it. And most fraud occurs not in companies that aren't doing well, but in companies that are, are, continue, are doing very well and want to continue that streak. Mm-hmm. So let's say a stock price or revenue, whatever, or earnings are increasing. So for financial, I focus a lot on financial statement fraud, given my background. And fraud typically occurs, you know, at a point when you, oh, well, we're only like, we're really close to the numbers. We're just going to make it work this, this month. And, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. And it's mm-hmm. it maybe a little bit gray. And then, okay, we'll make it up next quarter. Oh, then no, no, we'll make it up the quarter after that. And, and so maybe it's slowing down from 10% growth to 8% growth. So still wildly good, wildly mm-hmm. good. But again, there's expectations, right? You're trying to meet expectations, you know, and that's when, that's when it gets dicey. That's when it gets difficult. And uh, there's a lot of pressure to continue to form at those levels. Uh, and that's when, when I saw a lot of financial statement fraud occurring and, and it, was, it was fascinating to look into. Tell you what, it must be like as, as a CPA or like a chartered accountant myself, you know, numbers are generally thought black and white. So so yeah. having the human element, the gray being introduced must must been really fascinating or must be must be quite a, a mindset shift, right? It, it was, yes and no, because, yeah. and, and yeah. I guess I had the wool pulled, uh, out, out, pulled over my eyes for a while, and then it, it finally was unflapped when I was about 22 years old. So I uh, graduated, and I went to work for a, a large Fortune 500 retailer. It was a financial manager training program, which was great, and I was an internal audit, and I was doing some report. I think it was about store closures or store opening, something like that. And um, and I went into the the gas to come in. I was the chief accounting officer, three or four VPs, and operations, whatever. And I was giving my recommendations. I quickly realized that these highly experienced, highly intelligent, highly educated people, who I thought couldn't, I don't understand how they could possibly make wrong, 
we're taking recommendations and we're acting upon what a 22-year-old just did on a Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. And, and I realized, like, oh, my gosh, you know what? Tom, Dick, and Harry run every single large corporation in, in, in the world, apparently. And they're relying on people like me mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> to give them the answers. Um, so, you know, the, taking the leap from that to understanding when, you know, look at like uh, the, the Enron or, or Scrooge and Hellspell, a lot of the accounting scandals that occurred in the early 2000s. Um, and and I, I, I'd say shifted to economic issues with Lehman Brothers and the Great Recession and the mortgage banking issues that I did a lot of work on as well, too were because of that. They, they didn't, they don't have the answers, but they're, they, the problem is not having the answers. The problem is realizing your job is to make a decision with inaccurate, imperfect information. And you're going to be wrong sometimes. And you have to get off your high horse and rely on, uh, on, on things that aren't necessarily black and white. So in terms of how we can turn that to our advantage, in terms of the decision makers' advantage, sort of what things you think can, could our, our audience be sort of doing maybe some practical steps they could do to make sure that they're offering up decision makers the best advice or on the other hand when those are we're making decisions we're actually making better ones making them less right. great well i think we all have to um there's two things but there's one thing that um i think we all have to understand is that there's a great book called the peter principle and it was mm-hmm. written in the 1950s and i don't know if you ever have you ever read it andrew yeah yeah <laughs> okay it's hilarious it is a joke it is a joke it is a pure joke but it's, you know, people get promoted to the point of incompetence. And that, that stuck with me, and it's true. So, you know, as an analyst and as a finance person, we're here to advise and, and, and work with our, our, our management teams to, to do better decisions and better companies and, and really add good to the, to the world. And, and I'm serious. I'm not, uh, you know, you really want to, you want to, you want to work for a company that does something good and provides an organization and provides value to whoever their customers are. And but you have to do that in a constrained environment when we're probably the person that you're advising or above you or or management in some organization has reached their point of incompetence. So think about that. All right. I mean, I'm not saying everybody has. Right. But they're they're thinking they have this imposter. Your boss or, or, or people you're advising probably have an imposter syndrome. And they think they're just waiting for somebody to, to find out that they're a fraud. And, and there, there's, that's not uncommon. It's very, very common that, you know, people feel this way. And, and so you have to use your abilities um, in, in finance and analytics to comfort them through data science. And mm-hmm. one way that I've done this is, is asking the but for. So in litigation, it's, in forensic litigation, it's very common to ask the but for question. So, but for this event, um, you know, what, what, what would have occurred? Would the business have continued? Would the, what, what would have happened? So when you're advising somebody or, or an organization, but for, or if then, if, if this occurs, if then. Mm-hmm. If, if then, right, then, and then, and, and run through scenarios. And that's the only way you discover is through the scenario analysis is back and forth. There's no one right answer. It's all probabilistic. And we have to work through scenarios to figure those out. And that's interesting. I, I remember some research on this. What what insights do managers and leaders value the most? And it's actually those if-then implication scenario type analytics, the prescriptive ones yeah. that they put more mm-hmm. value on, which is actually turning the numbers more into words. And I guess in terms of your journey, Ken, industry, and consulting, 
you know, and I think FPNA's come up quite a bit in that journey. Is is that is that where you see the uh, you know advantage of FPNA or the value of FPNA nowadays? Oh, absolutely. I think you know FPNA is is a relatively new field. It's been around in, in shapes, in different shapes and forms for you know decades and decades. But in, in regards to the development of it, a separate department within a finance or under the CFO organization, it's relatively new. And but that's where I see the future going. So I believe in continuous accounting and that within the next 10 to 15 years, this accounting closed process we go through will be eliminated and we'll oh, move okay. toward a continuous accounting, continuous accounting structure because of the automation that the cloud and other digital technologies allow us. And we need to do that as, as a, a people, as an organization, um, because there's too much data being created. No matter how many accountants and finance people are minted, there is physically not enough of us to manage and analyze this data and I say, well, there's data sciences and other things like that. And you're right. But the finance function really takes everything and looks at everything through the lens of profit, through the lens of dollars. And so we, we we're very important in understanding, you know, not pure research, but applied research and applying those numbers to actionable things that an organization or person can do. Um, so, you know, when I envision FPNA, I see it as, becoming more fewer accounts, more FP&A. That's a kind of a, a tough thing to say because yeah. uh, as a profession, we don't like to change. I mean, as a accountant, <laughs> we're just not known as, as dynamic. For, I mean, no, no accountant walks into the room and like girls scream, yay! It just doesn't happen. Okay? I mean, unless you're an accountant and you're a beetle or something. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're just not dynamic individuals. So we don't like change. But in order for us to progress as a profession, in order for... The, you know, the world to progress, to be honest with you, yeah, you, you really need to to go on and, and say, okay, well, I need to evolve my skill set into the FP&A, and there'll be more people in FP&A than there are going to be in accounting in the near future, in my opinion. And in terms of evolving that skill set, Ken, like what, what may be the, the one, two, three key things um, aspiring FP&A professionals should look towards? You know, it's interesting. It's, um, you know, you, you sit there, the, the knee-jerk reaction, oh, analytic skill. Eh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we, we got we got amazing tools now to, to really aid us for that. I think the biggest thing is communication. So, um, you know, I'm having a symposium in Washington, D.C. metro area, um, and we're, we're focusing on the FP&A function for the first symposium. And it's going to be people, process, and technology. And, you know, we talk about the, the skill sets. One of those is people. And, and, you know, people, what type of skills do people need to start learning? How do you involve your FP&A team? if they came from accounting or getting their master's in business or engineering uh, or consulting or investment banking, because they do come from different fields and, and that adds value to a team. Um, you know, how do you evolve their skill sets to be ready for the next thing? Uh, and it's a key question that we're going to be discussing. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question actually. And there's a lot of thought out there that the, I think there's like a tipping point with diversity in a team in terms of a, mm -hmm. a finance team in particular, bringing people in from different backgrounds, different countries, uh, different disciplines and professions but, but we're not all arriving uh, on the same same page some might be stronger than others and it's about pulling them together um i, I suppose it oh and, and i just want to say in gender too i mean it's not just because oh, they have God. two daughters oh. but for what i what i found very valuable Definitely. is is a diverse team but also 70 percent of of, uh, of purchases are still made at least in the u.s by 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 women and you know if you're and that could be b2b or b2c i don't care they bring a different perspective because of they're looking at life through a different lens. 
Um, so I found that you have less congruent think with when you have a good mix and congruent think of, you know, you have a whole bunch of people in the room. This is what everyone wants to see, right? Someone up on the whiteboard doing something and 10 people in the room nodding their heads. Well, <laughs> I don't, I don't like that. I actually want dissent. I want challenges. Yes. I want to know, you know, and not, not I want professional challenges, oh, but yeah. when you have that different uh, views, you begin to think differently and come up with better solutions, in my opinion. Oh, completely and look that's i think that's something when we look across our finance teams yeah we have to ask how representative are our finance teams of our customer base or, or who we're trying to serve yeah. you know and yeah, in terms no, of tapping great. into those and seeing it through their eyes so that's that's just so important uh ken look i was just trying to think in terms of your work at the moment like what what's really exciting you most i'd say digital transformation is really exciting me right now um and, and at the same time, I feel there's a lot of people that are really struggling to understand it and how it will change the work and impact uh, their business and their lives. Um, digital transformation in finance is not just moving to the cloud. I mean, everyone knows kind of, you know, they're beginning to do that. But it's a, it's, it's a way that data within an organization moves to where it is most valuable. Previously, yeah. an IT team may have been the keeper of the data uh, and doled out access to only those it deemed worthy or knowledgeable to use it in an appropriate manner. And then, you know, it, it has shifted more to seem toward continuous accounting and automation where the data is getting freed up. Unfortunately, I still see now in many organizations where I walk in and the IT team, you know, still has this control issue like, well, you can't hit our database. You can only, have, you can only go through this GUI that we created. Well, yeah, but if I go through, if I go to your directly your data warehouse, I can pull right into Excel run a pivot table and run the report. And that cuts out a whole step as opposed to going to this GUI, putting in the parameters, getting an Excel spreadsheet, deleting the columns I don't need, the rows I don't need, the information I don't need, <laughs> bring it back into Excel, running the pivot table. And they're like, well, well, it's more secure that way. I'm like, I don't care. That's not my problem. My problem is get good information. Your job is to make sure things are secure. Give me something that'll work. And, um, you know, there's, then you also have the issue with data is like you have uh, Tableau and Click and a lot of the business and Microsoft BI, which are great tools, but they're able to pull from a whole bunch of different databases. So now we go from one extreme where it's too restrictive to really business intelligence where it's too unrestrictive because you can have apples and oranges looking at the same, same thing with two different numbers based on timing, based on categorization, and then you get confusion. So it's, it's, it's a job of finance. And what I think see things FP&A moving to is the reconciliation of, you know, the historical as well as the forecasted and, and, and I say fuzzy data um, and, and bringing, bringing insight through the utilization of those, both, both of those, and being a key resource for the management team to, to develop that. A lot. I, mean, I think that in terms of the data, there's so much volatility and complexity mm -hmm. just because of those those trends, the restrictive and the unrestrictive elements you just mentioned, Ken. I, I, it's just, yeah. I, I think there's so much value we can add in terms of even having those conversations to identify where the value's at, what it is that people want to make decisions for and what it is that they have. Closing those gaps and getting the data to, in effect, move towards them and close those gaps. I mean, like, yeah. how many other functions have that visibility in, in a business to be able to do that? Transparency is, is key. And like I talked about, I, before we, we got into this, I talked about a new way of, of costing. And I, and I can't talk much about it because I just don't know, uh, you know, is the complexity cost. And it was a square two costing, I think it was called. And I have to go get the books. So I can't talk much about it. I just don't know about it. 
but because organizations have now come to the point of that the complexity has has dramatically increased, the standard costing, the activity-based costing has really gotten either ineffective or uh, inefficient in order to apply, in order to understand product line and, and product profitability. Um, and adding on to that, now we have this huge ability to take to take the the role of of, of economists and do demand planning of how different things mm-hmm. are doing. Yeah, well, before remember, let's talk about the seventies, right? Seventies or eighties, you had these big banks with great economists, and they tell you what GDP was going to be, and and bro, and and what wholesale goods are going to be, and like, okay, so you can kind of like, okay, I think the wind's on my back, or I think it's in my face. I can figure it out. Well, now, which is which is wonderful, we've released this data, and you know, I, I can tell you now by zip code what lifestyle segmentation is going to be there. How are they going to buy or or, or, or or do new loans or whatever within just a smaller area and really become an expert in that process without an economics degree? <laughs> and you don't need one, you know. But you, you bring in that demand and and you bring in the costing impacts and, and you got a big uh, you got a big mesh. Yeah, definitely. Like I mean, that's that's been my own in terms of my own journeys is moving from I suppose commercial finance more towards the pricing side of things. It's it's amazing mm-hmm. what tools are out there that, that can take core accounting type skills or, or, or skills we get from our MBAs as well, just to yeah. to bring them to, to the most valuable area of the business. It's just keeping that appetite for understanding, that openness to learning and acquiring new knowledge. And, and, and hey, presto, there we go. It's it's. I tell you, what, it's never been a more exciting time. So just on that question, I, I suppose in terms of the next 12 months, Ken, are there any sort of areas uh, we, we could be looking out from an accounting and FP&A or finance perspective just to keep ourselves more more relevant or remain relevant? Well, I think we are our own. If we are accountants, if you start, if you and, and you and I are both accountants, I guess by trade, we love to um, make sure things are reconciled and that they are they are even and in, in, in the right <laughs> categories. And, and that, that, that's our but that's our nature. And, and is, you know, yeah. we needed to have that for so many years. You know, you go back to the Italian monks who started double entry accounting, and they they love that that as well too. It always had to be in balance, right? Um, and I think for us, we need to do two things: is uh, you know, as a accountants and finance people, get comfortable, get greater comfort with ambiguity. So a forecast is never right, but it's incredibly valuable. Um, you know, you don't you don't want it. You don't intend for it to be um, you know always right. You don't want it to be. You, you want it to be probabilistic, and so you have a picture with different scenarios of how things are going to look. Uh, and you need to tell a story, and that's that's hard for us as well too, because a lot of uh, currently right now in the industry, I see a lot of people who are, are masters in Excel and data analytics. And I, I did this, and, and you talk about me, my my background in forensic accounting. I used to work with brilliant absolutely brilliant mathematicians and, and economists um, and experts in a variety of fields. And I'd have to sit there and I have to listen to them and I have to dissect and digest all this information, which was highly, highly quantitative. Uh, and I had to translate that into usable information in smaller chunks to juries and lawyers. And those are smart people too, but they're different intelligence. They're different smart. And they were wonderful in, in thinking up these theories and thinking up these ideas, but they weren't necessarily the best at communicating how to use them. And they had a difficult time understanding that you didn't have to be 100% right. They kept on saying, but this, but this, but this. I'm like, okay, okay. If, it, if this works for majority of the time, 
let's put down every single area we was about to have caveats that were like five pages long. Like, I'm okay with caveats. You know, well, because it is, right? I mean, yeah. they, they love caveats because they think, well, yes, but you're not thinking of it holistically. Okay, okay. But, you know what I mean? But people don't think through five pages of caveats. We can, we can put it in there, but what, what decision can we make with that? We need to make, come to a point where we have to be comfortable with the fuzziness and make logical decisions or help make logical decisions or support logical decisions in the right direction. And that's how we move things forward. It's interesting because I was about to ask, like, what was the best advice you ever received? But I think that's a fantastic one there. It's actually, yeah. take, take, I mean, because I have to say, I am a big admirer of double entry. I, just, I love the order of it. I love how easy oh, yeah. it is. But then it's so true nowadays to be so comfortable with that fuzziness. And yeah. we're dealing with smart people, whether it's the smart people generating the insights or the smart people doing the influencing or impacting with the insights. And we just need to get comfortable all all of those phases, actually be able to shift through all of them. Or if we can't, at least find people and compliment ourselves with those people that can. So that's, I, I mean, look, it's great it's just a great, great opportunity. So, so Ken, like in terms of, I do want to ask you, like what, what's been the best bit of advice you've ever received? Run toward the gunshot. It's probably the best, uh, but yeah. I, I, and, and don't get me wrong. I am I am by no far, far no warrior. I I'm a lover by far. Um, you know they don't they don't they don't want me in war. They would probably oh, kill me. Talking to me, yeah, yeah. But uh, what I mean by that is that um, so many years ago, and uh, you know it was, just, it was just many years ago. I'm not going to go into how old I am. And, and um, I remember, you know, the derivatives were a big issue and, and we learned and there, there were things called, you know, mortgage-backed securities and REMEX, real estate mortgage investment conduits, and a variety of different structures, uh, financial structures that were being created. And I'm like, well, this is just fascinating. So I, I started to learn more about it and, uh, you know, bought a textbook on it, put it on my desk, started reading about my spare time, started talking to people about it. I mean, I think I did a couple of presentations on it. And what I found is that, you know, that's, that's, where the, that's where the gunfire was going, right? That's where all the, the hot stuff, the stock options or the litigation or whatever in my industry was going on. And what I found is that people gravitated toward me as an expert. Now, I, I didn't consider myself as an expert by any means, but they started coming to me with questions. And, um, and, and I started to want to answer them. And I, I love solving problems. I'm like, I don't know. Let me figure this out. And, and it grew from there to, you know, writing for the Journal of Accountancy, a big publication, CPA Journal, a variety of other things on this topic where I actually became one of the leading experts in the accounting analysis of complex securities and was called upon not only my firm, but externally to, you know, pontificate uh, and write, write reports and so on on this. What I mean by run toward the gunfire is I learned to like, okay, do it's another way of saying is zig when someone else zags or, you know, um, do what nobody else wants to do. And they're all saying the same thing. And, you know, it's not saying, you know, if you see a guy picking up dog poop, that seems like a great professional to go into it because nobody else wants to do it. But there's obviously opportunities where, where things are hard. And, you know, just by taking a little bit of time, a little bit of interest, you know, you can help yourself just in prof- personally and professionally by running toward that and learning about it and, and going and being part of that. Um, and, and I think that was some great advice that, uh, that I received and, and that I learned and I, I received it from my father, but I didn't believe him because, you know, you never believe anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah what do my parents know? Right. Oh uh, yeah. They, they were right about a lot of things, Andrew. A lot yeah, of things. I, yeah. Um, I know. Like I'm not, yeah. I'm for, I'm for, yeah. Unfortunately, we don't tend yeah. to see these things at the time, but 
But in hindsight, yes, yeah. definitely. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and, <laughs> and the second thing I just want to say, too, there is communication. I talked about communication before, but, um, you know, in advice, my advice that was given to me is break things down into usable chunks. So let me, let me put this another way. So everything that is complex must start out simple. It, it has to. There is no other way to get there. If you look at the human body, it is probably one of the most complex machines in existence. Um, you know, I didn't create it. Obviously, you know, it's been created. <laughs> uh, but, you know, at our core, okay, 99% of the mass of the human body is made up of six elements. Oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, and phosphorus. Okay, 99% of it is made up of those six elements. And, you know, the, those are elements that are, you know, there's nothing you can't break those down anymore, right? So yeah. is the human body easy? No. <laughs> we have not even come close to that. We are not close to it. But it is simple to understand. And, and it's kind of like using Google. People, when I was the CFO of a digital marketing agency, um, people were like, well, I don't understand why is Google so hard? Google makes it, it works really hard to make it simple. It's just not easy. The algorithm behind it to get you the 50 million pages of which they show you 10 on first page, which is most likely for you to, to be relevant to what you're looking for, is immensely hard, but it's so simple to use. And we use our bodies in the same way, right? It's so simple. We use it every day, but it's really created by six elements. By taking things and breaking them down into smaller chunks and, and understanding the simplicity within the complex in, in your communication, and then what we talked about before is building the story around it, that is some great advice. Look for the simplicity in the complex and communicate it effectively. And I, think, I think everyone should look to do that. Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, uh, Ken, I love your voice so much. I mean, look, you've just given away my entire career secrets there. So um, appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I don't yeah, know about by that. By unique yeah. differentiators, yeah. <laughs> so, no, I'm delighted you shared that. I, I, again, I mean, that's that's fantastic advice. And I love the analogy of our bodies. You know, they're not they're not simple. They're not easy. They're actually quite complex. But they're actually simple enough to understand if we deconstruct them in the right way. So... Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, and, and I think that's the same for any business. And funny enough, it's human, oh, human yeah, beings absolutely. build businesses. So if we build them, I'm sure we can deconstruct them simple enough. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. yeah, that's yeah. a challenge I lay down to a lot of people as well. So fantastic. I love those two bits of advice. So thanks for sharing, Ken. And um, in terms of maybe any other resources or books you'd recommend our audience, um, what would uh, what might they be? You know, I, I, love, uh, I love economics and I love the theories around it. So I love the Freakonomic books uh, oh, by brilliant. Stephen Levitt and Stephen Dunbar. Um, do you guys have it over there in the UK or is that just a... No, we have it. Uh, Freakonomics. Oh, and okay. is it Super Freakonomics, is it? I think as well. There's yeah, Freakonomics. Up one. Yeah. yeah, they're rogue economists, as they put themselves. Um, and, um, you know, it, it gets away from the headlines and looks at some of the data behind it and then helps to explain it. And they put stories around it. And one of them, uh, and I think it was pretty sure it was economics, is they talk about, I think it was hockey, but I'm not 100% sure, or some group sport. And they looked at um, the program or whatever for some hockey match. And they realized that the birthdays for all of the players, yes. except for like two, were in January and February and later. <laughs> it's you know? crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's crazy. And they're like, well, why is that? It's because when you're younger, um, it's it, six months of, of growth is a lot. And, and then that's why they could perform at that level. Well, people that are in the same grade, but had a later birthday, even though they are quote unquote, the same age, weren't able to perform at that level. 
And, and it was kind of interesting. And he goes, well, when you looked at him, like, well, so we need to change. Is it the problem with the process? And, you know, and, and, and why, how are we judging this and how are we doing sports should not be at the same um, milestones necessarily for certain sports than, than others. And, and it's just to me a very eye-opening type of thing when you take a look at something that people take for granted. And you realize, you know, I like challenging the status quo with that. I'm like, well, why? Why does it have to be that way? And it doesn't, in my opinion. You just need to start thinking about it better and looking at it and asking the questions that we do so well in finances. Why? Just tell me why. Yeah. Yeah, one one of the, those are great approaches, the five whys uh, from us at Lean Six Sigma. It's just great. You know, gets gets near the bottom of a problem it's every, every single time, it seems. Yeah, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, no, I love it. Love it, Ken. So, look, Ken, really appreciate uh, all the guidance, advice, and the resources there. I mean, if some of our audience, if they'd like to follow up with you, where's the best place to reach out and find you at? Oh, I'd love it if they could go to my website, FPA, so F is in Frank, P is in Paul, A is in analysis, expert.com. And if you go to my uh, to that website and click on events on the top menu, you know, I appreciate it. Please go and register for my symposium if you're going to be in the Metro Washington, D.C. area on June 7th. Uh, I'm looking for a, a group of really smart and great finance people. We're going to get together and talk about in three separate sessions. It's just a morning session from 730 to 130. Lunch is included, plus breakfast. And uh, we're going to talk about people, process, and technology. Uh, and then even if you can't come to the event, please sign up because afterwards they're going to pr- pr- uh, produce summaries. Everyone on the email list will get a summary of each of those areas that we've learned. And we're doing it a little differently. As opposed to somebody getting up and talking to you, we're just going to facilitate discussions based on questions. And, and we, we think the best way, me and my partners think the best way for people to learn is through their peers. And what are their peers doing? And how are they addressing it? And, and working together to solve problems. And then you can bring in advisors. But, you know, in, in, just having somebody talk to you, I think, is less effective claiming they have a solution than talking to people that are they're in the same space as you or same position as you and working to solve them together. And I think this is uh, what the symposium is intended to do. So again, that's fpaexperts.com. Feel free to, to go there and, and love to get any emails from you as well too. That's fantastic. Thanks again. And look, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes as well for any of our audience interested in following up. And I know a lot of our audience are based stateside. So, um, and, and bear in mind, it's free breakfast. Was it free breakfast, lunch in there as well, Ken? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, free yeah. breakfast and lunch. Absolutely. If I, uh, if I, I still check, <laughs> I'll have to check my diary, see if I'm stateside around then. <laughs> I might be swinging by. Love to have you, Andrew. <laughs> Love to have so, you. Uh, so look, Ken, uh, Louis, been a great guest. I, uh, I'm really going to look forward to, to putting this podcast together in terms of uh, some of the insights you've shared and some of the, the practical steps we can all follow on and, and also there's bits of advice too. They're absolutely fantastic. So Ken, thank you so much for investing your time in the show and, and sharing everything with us. Thank you, Andrew. It was a real pleasure. Anytime. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to know more about our guests today, their bio, and follow up on the resources mentioned during the show, you can find all the relevant links and more at sitnshow.com. There you'll also be able to get access to earlier shows, read the latest blogs. There's also an opportunity to subscribe to our newsletter. 
which will give you heads up as to when the next show is coming out, latest events, news and anything that's going to be relevant to help you have a fun, rewarding and successful career in finance and accounting. And just before you go, we really appreciate your feedback. If there's something we can do better on the show, something that's not working or something you'd like to see, even a guest you'd like for us to invite onto the show, someone who you think might be able to benefit you more and also the rest of our community, please let me know. You can email me. I'm at andrew at sitnshow.com or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message so I know how you found me and we can connect. And really it's our community that will make the show. If we keep engaging and driving each other on, we'll keep on building our strength in the numbers. And when all is said and done, if we can do the numbers better and finance better, we'll create more opportunities for ourselves, our friends, our families, our communities and our businesses. So until next time, have a good rest of the week. Take care and let's keep building our strength in the numbers.